Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 72 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, we just get rolling right into it, right? Because today we're joined by a great guest, uh, Matt Dagger-Margosian, who is the founder of Asia Art Tours and host of the Arts of Travel podcast, who just does a, you know, a lot of really great work looking at in particular, like leftism in, in Asia, right? And, and what we want to talk about today as a kind of theme running through some of the episodes we've been doing in the past is really drill down even more into what is the uh, perception of Asia, of, of Asian politics, of worker movements, of uh, solidarity movements, of you know, leftist politics in Asia in particular um, from this kind of like Anglo leftism or Western leftism viewpoint as well, right? Um, cause this is something that we run up against all the time that we've talked about in our episodes, looking at, for example, like platform capitalism in China, um, looking at like antitrust regulation in China, right? Like looking at these more like techno political aspects, uh, in particular in China. Um, but you know, Asia more generally, right? Like from a Western point of view, we always run up against that. Like, where do we find good information? Who do we talk to? How do we kind of filter through what we learn? What's told to us? Uh, you know, how, how we, how do we, how do we squeeze out the propaganda? What voices do we really listen to and raise up, um, in trying to understand these very, very important global struggles, um, in a large part of the world, right? And so happy to have you on here, Matt, to kind of help us, uh, navigate through some of this and share some of your own, um, experiences and insights, uh, from, from your work. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be on and just, I guess, as a meta uh, commentary. Yeah, I really appreciate when podcasts have smaller voices like us on. Um, I think there's a real danger, at least in a lot of the media I see produced on the left, of uh, only having people on who are part of larger institutions that often have profit-seeking or motives or necropolitical cores and uh, quite frankly, I don't really think we're going to produce a revolutionary milieu unless we make sure we're including a mix of voices, especially ones who are not beholden to institutions um, like the academy, um, like celebrity, which at their core, I think, are not revolutionary. So, yeah, thanks for having a small voice like me on your podcast to chat about some of these topics today. No worries. Small voice, big ideas. That's 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 the that's the milieu we try to run on TMK. <laughs> Marks without money. Oh, I mean, Marks don't have money. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, right. angles. Right. Got, yeah. No angles. You're my angles. That's uh, <laughs> oh, uh, how far the left is falling. <laughs> I don't think angles would like that. We're the angles. Right. One anarchist, one black anarchist. I don't know how you felt about <laughs> uh, you know about me, but um. You could say maybe William Anderson is like, uh, what is it? I forget who wrote Black Anarchy. I can never say his name. Lorenzo mm-hmm. Irving. Maybe that's his angles because I think William Anderson had a, like a really huge role in, in getting him on his feet when he was released mm. from prison. I didn't know that. 
we we all we all need a, an angles in our life. That that's the that's the whole goal of communism, right? Is to uh, nationalize the angles so everybody has access to it. But, uh, <laughs> um, maybe maybe as a way to just get rolling. Then and this is going to some of the things we were talking about before we were recording. That actually, it's just like I don't know what what is your view, Matt? Like uh, of the way that. Asian, um, a- Asia, and particularly Asian leftist politics, and and these kind of worker movements, which are really popping off right now, right? Um, how? What's your view of the ways that they tend to be uh, filtered or framed in um, Western media, right? Which we all have, you know, we all know, uh, you know, they really do be out here manufacturing consent, as Ed is so keen to say, rightfully so. Um, but particularly, I think like. I, I, I am very curious and, and interested to take that leftist point of view, right, as well, where, you know, as leftists, we are, we are meant to be more skeptical and more critical of these, like, mainstream uh, framings, you know, of, of uh, whether it's, you know, journalists that are coming in through, like, big kind of uh, liberal establishment papers, like the New York Times, for example, um, or, and, which are also, you know, as decades of criticism of the of the media industrial state complex has shown right is there there's a there's a pipeline between like state department talking points and what's published in uh you know in the new york times for example like we're as leftists we are meant to be like more aware and critical of that but at the same time i am curious to know like how do you see like what kind of failings do you see consistently in the way that these things are framed I think, uh, well, two voices come to mind. The first would be actually not in Asia. It would be African, and that would be sort of a Chile Mbembe. And Mbembe, I think, in his dialogue about decolonialism, is he works a lot through the frameworks of, of people like Hegel, at least in his more recent work, and he talks a lot about you know wanting to destroy and oppose decolonialism while still sort of understanding why it happened when it did and that people who were doing it at that time uh, were doing it within frameworks that were obviously racist, obviously imperialist, but were sort of the driving ideas and, and zeitgeist of those moments. I think we do not, I think we're sort of trapped in the past quite a bit in terms of how we interact with each other in different Countries, we want to be decolonial while not really knowing how to talk to each other and how to move forward. We constantly feel like we're carrying this historical debt and guilt that prevents us from dialoguing with each other because of the numerous imperialist actions of our governments. Um, And I feel like in Mbembe's work, which is very good at unpacking the destructiveness of these ideas while saying there still needs to be dialogue between us in order to destroy them is a voice I really turn to and think about quite a bit in terms of how we can do a better job building international solidarity with places that are not our own. He also talks quite a bit about um, that without dialogue, it's just study. And I, I think that is something where it would be a good transition into the other voice that I find very informative, and that is uh, Asia-based voice, and that is the magazine publication Chuang. Chuang, when I interviewed them, you know, Chuang can talk Marxism with anyone, and you know, it would be like these famous uh, 
Jordan Peterson destroys feminist <laughs> newscaster, you know, or for us, I don't know, um, uh, these sorts of really these debates where it's very clear one person has centered their entire lives around something rather than it just being their career. Chuang can talk about the left with anyone. But when I interviewed them, you know, they were not talking to me about, you know, the, the long history of Marxism in China and how that eventually transitioned into sort of the neoliberal hellscape that it is today. They were talking to me in this very plain spoken language about if you want to help form international solidarity, fuck shit where you are up locally. Um, and that message has always sort of stayed with me. Mbembe talks a lot about where Africa, because his focus is Africa, but it applies to these decolonial conversations, that Africa is just this place of study. It's just something we study. It's just something we gather data about. It's just something we write our theories about. But there's no actual dialogue. Chuang talks a lot about how study without action is not something that can build international solidarity. Mm -hmm. That if that, you know, it's okay, great. You can talk about Marxism in China all you want. And I think this is where I don't get as wrapped up in these sort of tanky debates. If you really want to build solidarity, fuck shit up where you are locally. If you're a tanky, that could mean building out a communist party. If you're, uh, I'm not a tanky, I'm not a communist, um, uh, I'm an anarchist. If you want to build solidarity with workers at JSIC or truck drivers who are setting themselves on fire or um, students who are demanding democracy, however flawed that term is under capitalism in places like Myanmar or Thailand or West Papua, look for where undemocratic forces are tolerated with where you are. And so um, I really like this idea of, of study without action is, is I don't know if counter-revolutionary is the term, but I think orientalist, mm-hmm. I think it, all this talk about Asia without actually doing anything is quite orientalist. And I really like this idea. It's very simple. And again, these come from people who are maybe some of the smartest and most committed Marxists uh, or communists, I should say on the planet right now, if you really want to build solidarity, fuck shit up where you are and fuck up the unfreedoms that are existing in these other spaces. And that is showing solidarity with China, not reading as many books or learning Chinese as you can. You can do that. You're not going to beat Chuang. Chuang is the Chapo trap house of this, of these sorts of things. You're not going to fuck with Chuang, (laughs) but you know, um, what's more realistic is going to a black lives matter protest um, uh, or, you know, um, engaging in direct actions or what our mutual friend, me and Edwards, Vicky Oster, might call not nonviolence or um, things of that nature. So I think that would be a good place to start. Those two figureheads have been deeply influential on me and Chile Mbembe and, uh, and the journal Collective Chuang. Mm. You know, what got you to at first develop uh, the project, you know, was it coming at a time where you were looking around and seeing a sort of gap in a, a study without this action and you were interested in speaking to people who were on the ground as a way to inspire people back here to do things? Or was it that it came at a time where you had, you know, you yourself were trying to learn more about what was going on in some of these places? Was it, you know, catalyzed by any other event that, um, 
that got you to start the project in the first place. Yeah, and going off of that real quick as well, can you also tell us more about the work that you are doing? Okay, so uh, as an introduction, and then we'll get into the long-sorted tale filled with sex, drugs, the Epstein files. No, <laughs> yeah, we, we are crossing over a lot of different podcast spheres right now. The, the, stream, or, uh, the streams oh, are crossing like Ghostbusters up in I here. I that was a podcast. <laughs> uh, no, they're, they're called uh, Truanon. They're not. Are, do they have a podcast now just called the Epstein no, files? No, no, no. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's let's stop promoting other people. We are trying <laughs> to get fame for ourselves. So um, Asia Art Tours and the Arts of Travel podcast are designed to center voices um, either within struggle or to better unpack historical struggle as it exists um, from people either of the diaspora, individuals who've uh, studied uh, these struggles deeply, either as participants or as uh, sort of, uh, what's the word, um, activist scholars, and to center those uh, voices. So we, for example, have been doing quite a bit of coverage on what it's like to live under Duterte in the Philippines, what it has been like to live under a military dictatorship in West Papua, the, the many um, factions, both revolutionary and counter-revolutionary in the Hong Kong uh, protests, what violence against workers looks like in China. We try to see how these, we try to connect these struggles, figure out how these struggles have solidarity with one another. We try to center voices within these countries that have historically been marginalized or talked over. So um, workers in China, um, Laotian or Muslim minorities in Thailand, uh, Melayu, um, indigenous minorities in places like West Papua, and so on. So recounting these struggles, figuring out what they mean, and then oftentimes within the interviews, connecting them to ideologies that we do find intersectional and revolutionary, often led by people who've historically been marginalized or oppressed by white supremacy or racial capitalism. So um, looking at looking at things like uh, the workers' movement in China, looking at things like uh, talking to people who aren't white. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm being way too <laughs> verbose for what I mean. Talking to a lot of people who aren't white, because I think that's a big problem for the Anglo left. And talking to people who aren't necessarily, don't have a class interest in promoting certain ideologies, which if we want to talk about tankyism and why there's so many corporate lawyers, IP lawyers, uh, people with business degrees, who are tankies, we can talk about that, but also exploring the, the class tensions of these movements and trying to connect them to things that we do find revolutionary. So the ideology of abolitionism through scholars like, let's say, Joy James, what does that have to do with the Hong Kong protests? What does that have to do with protests in Thailand? Figuring out in, I think, a Fananian way, how we can rebuild sort of a global dangerous decolonial movement, not just something you read at Columbia you know, in, in your graduate seminar, but decolonialism was dangerous for a very long period of history. And then those revolutions were killed and destroyed, like so many others. 
So figuring out how to make these ideologies dangerous again and threatening to the state again. Um, in terms of my own evolution, I'll do it very quick. I used to like things like Chapo and blah, 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 sort of white people in a room saying how smart they are and how stupid everyone else is. And eventually Black Lives Matter happened and that was a world historic moment. And I kept waiting for these people to talk about Black Lives Matter and they never did. Or if they did, they would be openly dismissive um, because it was being led by people who were not of their class. And I don't want to cast racial aspersions, but it is disturbing the lack of black voices or people of color that are on a lot of these podcasts as guests or as hosts or um, anything like that. So I found that really disturbing. That led me to do some soul searching. And then right after that, Hong Kong happened. And Hong Kong has a lot of contradictory tendencies within it. I think on the whole, it was We'll, we'll quote dung 60% good, 40% bad, something like that to be, you know, not to be cheeky about something that is still impacting people's lives with individuals being sent to prison or having to flee in exile. But to hear all these people, again, these same sort of white people or individuals who are not directly affected by the struggle or individuals of, let's say, the, the, the Chinese diaspora who maybe have a class interest in defending China's state violence against Hong Kong, to hear all these people talking about it without actually having a stake in, in the outcome really bothered me. Um, this idea of sort of playing geopolitical chess really bothers me on the left. I, I do not like these abstract conversations when in reality there's so much at stake here. So those twin movements sort of not giving voice to what I think was one of the most revolutionary moments maybe of our lives. I hope there's more to come. Not even talking about that, continuing to talk about like Ben Dominich as like the main focal point of your podcast or continuing to wring as much content as you can out of someone who's now dead in Jeffrey Epstein. I just found that very boring. And um, for Hong Kong, I think it's fine to have opinions about it. But the fact that so many people that were being centered or who were speaking these opinions were not of the struggle, were not familiar with the struggle and did not have a stake in the outcome of the struggle other than making content really bothered me and I think set me out to produce the kind of media I do today. You've said a number of things that I find really interesting in their conciseness, but also just like like you know accuracy as well. Like some some great some great slogans here that uh, I want to think through a little bit more. I mean, one is that idea of study without action, right? Which I think is a very good uh, and 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 pretty dead on criticism of a lot of. Uh, you know, a lot of academic leftism in particular, right? Um, which is about that kind of study without action. And I think linked up to that is this idea of uh, movements like decolonialism, for example, needing to be dangerous, but we find them now uh, defanged in a lot of ways. And I think that, that, that those those two things are intimately linked together. I mean, I, I see this, right? Like I'm an academic myself. And so I'm, I'm seeing this coming from within academia as well, that, you know, one of my consistent 
criticisms is that like you know and it's not it's not just twitter but i do think that it like really uh is exacerbated by twitter right this idea that like i mean anybody can just log on call themselves a leftist and say anything right and then everyone's like oh that okay that's what leftists believe right i see this a lot with a lot of with a lot of people that do that study without action, right? Like they claim to be kind of coming from a leftist point of view, um, without ever actually seeming to care about like workers' conditions or worker power, for example. Something that I take as a as a core tenant of leftism, which is being intimately uh, not only familiar with, but but you know paying a lot of attention to. And, and really holding up things like anti-capitalist struggle, things like struggle for worker power and worker resistance. And it does seem like a lot of that has been purged or flushed from what is considered as leftism today. I mean, we could do it. We could we could go a lot further into. I don't know if we want to do that on this episode, but we could definitely go a lot further into this, the, the, the kind of like podcasting as a, as, as a form of media, um, as a, as a form of media consumption as well has kind of meant for, um, a lot, uh, for what leftism, um, means as well. But this is something that, uh, Ed and I talk a lot about, um, in terms of, of like technology criticism is like, we, like we need the, the whole point of technology criticism needs for it to be, um, adversarial to name its enemies and to be dangerous, right? Like that's, that's the whole idea behind the kind of Luddism, um, that, uh, that Ed, Jeremy and I identify with that we try to promote, um, and think through on this podcast, which is really taking the idea of something like technological criticism and direct action against capitalism as something that is is at its heart adversarial and dangerous to the interest of capital have you seen a development of the trends that you are you are, you are hoping for and that people are getting more interested in direct action getting more interested in like you know frameworks that are confrontational and antagonistic to power systems as opposed to accommodating and reformative. You know, I feel that there's an upswing in, you know, abolitionist thinking and direct action and mutual aid and like some of these praxis, you know, oriented strategies that are helping to connect people and helping to bring into people's lives the idea that you have to do things right you have to and you have to talk to your you know talk to your neighbors work with people in your community organize where you're at right uh, as a as a form of building solidarity and community that can then be connected with elsewhere is this like a development from where you are that you're seeing uh happen in the left or is it that it's still too dominated by some of these larger networks and larger uh, frameworks of thinking that uh, are top-down or you know re- regressive or reductive or reactionary or counter-revolutionary, as you were saying. We can talk about that. And then similar to what I was doing, and I had to catch myself when I did my interview on Israel and Palestine, I was like, I don't want to talk about Israel anymore. So after this, I don't want to talk about the Western left anymore. Um, I think, to be honest, they're pretty boring and not dangerous and not interesting. And it's mostly entertainment. Um, I mean, most podcasts, I'm surprised there's not like Opie and Anthony fart noises, you know, when people are like that slide whistles, when people are talking about their so-called leftism. I think there is, but there's a lot of racism that needs to be sorted out. I mean, 
Vicky Osterweil, who doesn't use Twitter as much anymore, I think, because of the concerns about how it commodifies discourse uh, and dialogue, um, was saying, you know, this weekend, if you want to read a book that was hated on by most of the Substack writers, you know, read my book, In Defense of Looting. I think that, again, our discourse is actually not that important. I think it's only important when it's amplifying movements in the street um, or trying to build solidarity between them. The only two things really that can get you fucked up in for tenure, at least it, it seems to me these days, are abolitionism, if you're too explicit in your anti-racism, in your anti-prison work, in your uh, commitment to um, what is John Brown saying, the good Lord bird, being on the side right. of justice rather than being on the side mm-hmm. of chains. Though that's one of the few things that can get you denied your tenure. I think we've seen a few academics. I don't know. I don't personally care for Nicole Hannah-Jones, but I, I think obviously that's an example. Um, I, I want to say David Gilmore, but I may be, uh, and my apologies to the individual, but there was a prominent academic down south who was denied tenure. And then the only other thing which I think does connect to sort of global abolitionism and is very destabilizing to the current geopolitical order is Palestine. You talk about Palestine too much, you can go to Stanford. And I mean, I have mixed feelings about when like someone from, you know, Stanford gets fired. I don't really care. But at the same time, you know, she'll be fine. But at the same time, uh, we see academics, we see journalists. You can't talk about Palestine. So I think in terms of like the left, and generally how we think we need to move more away from discourse. We don't need to be open about it. You know, you don't need to brag about I'm going to this spot. And I think a lot of the the more radical groups out in Portland or the Pacific Northwest, have, like you don't need to brag on Twitter what you're planning to do if you're going to go fuck up cop cars. Mm-hmm. You don't need to tell anyone that. You just go do it. I think we need to move away from discourse that that the powers that be have said is not destabilizing. So if you're talking about something and it's not really bothering anyone, if people aren't trying to buy you off. So like, uh, the, was it Alex Rosenblatt who got, who became a sellout? Is that oh, the yeah, now she, yeah, I'll call her now she runs, um, uh, she runs Uber's yeah. uh, marketing. So it, unless people are trying to buy you off, unless people are trying to silence you, I think your discourse probably is not that dangerous. True and on things like that. Okay. Epstein you know, points to these larger problems with the rich, but no one's going after them. No one's suing them. They're very comfortable, I think, with that type of sort of speculative tabloid style leering or thumbing their nose at power without a movement behind it. There's no movement connected to Epstein. So that's what I would say. If your discourse isn't pissing people off, if Matt Taibbi isn't coming after you, if you don't have all of the media trying to crush you, like we see with abolitionism, or if the university is still allowing you to study, like we like we see with a lot of subjects, except for Palestine. I don't think discourses without struggle is the way forward, and I, I would sort of stick to my earlier point, I guess, to answer that question. The left, generally, a little bit, but not really. I think a lot of the Anglo left needs to be in marches and, you know, not listen to people who are not in struggle. So I think it's sort of a tautology. I don't think media in general is the way forward.
So let, let's talk about what is happening um, in places like Hong Kong, in places like China, in Myanmar. What kind of movements are really going on that, that you know, can you tell us about things that are happening that, you know, we might not be hearing about um, or not hearing about in the right way, things that you have been actually interviewing and talking to people on the ground, participating yourself in, uh, in these politics, you know, what, what really comes to your mind as something that we need to be paying more attention to doing more of that, uh, more of that action and not just that study without action. Sure. I, I, I laughed because I had Jerry Seinfeld's voice come in my head and he went, what's the deal with Myanmar? <laughs> I mean, I think that is something that I think that is actually something that a lot of people are thinking, though, right? Like they see something like that or maybe they hear, uh, you know, to, to think about something like Facebook, right? Like they hear some of the the kind of like oblique um, accusations against Facebook, like, oh, they, they, you know, facilitated a genocide, right? I don't think a lot of people People are aware of what that actually means, though, um, and how that actually happened, right? I do actually think a lot of people have that kind of voice in their head that's like, what's the deal with Hong Kong or what's the deal with Myanmar, right? Um, so can you tell us what's the deal with these things? <laughs> sure. I mean, I think there's a couple things. So to, like there's a few things where history is actually dangerous, and it, it's very interesting to look at sort of state building in real time. I don't think, you know, like, so King obviously had this happen to him where the radicalism of Martin Luther King, I'm going somewhere, <laughs> don't worry, but there's a lot of intersections between, I think, the black freedom struggle, the global freedom struggles, we're seeing the censorship of things like abolition and Palestine. And I think the, the, the white supremacy within ourselves that we've yet to kill that allows us to talk about these movements from a place of ignorance while feeling smugly superior as a lot of the people on the left currently do. So there's like two things I would highlight. First would be history that's actually dangerous. When you look at Hong Kong and like they're talking about uh, with Israel now, uh, I think in more detail, when you look at um, Thailand, let's talk about Hong Kong and Thailand. There's a real-time movement by the state to impose what knowledge and discourse and education will look like. So all the Hong Kong textbooks are becoming incredibly patriotic towards the Communist Party, social movements or social education, you know, we learn through struggle. There used to be huge memorials for Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen is a hugely complicated issue, but that's what people feel passionate about. That's all being censored. Um, things like... Uh, can we have a national anthem? Sort of, again, this public education, the, the education of the square where Hong Kong crowdsourced a public a, a national anthem. I'm not, I'm not a fan of nations. I don't think they're going to save us. But that was something that was deeply uniting for the Hong Kong protest movement. That now, if you play it, you can get arrested in public. Uh, same with Thailand, where there's all these really powerful Marxist uh, or progressive activists in a place where criticizing the monarchy, criticizing the power elites that collaborate with the monarchy, criticizing the military is very, very dangerous. So in Thailand now, they're starting to figure out which academics are doing too good a job of unpacking the communist history of Thailand and connecting it to the present 
unpacking the large-scale protest movements of the 2000s, so the Red Shirt Movement, um, which was a movement of rural Northeast Thai citizens. Again, it's very complicated, but sort of demanding a political stake in their country, um, figuring out who those people are, censoring them, denying them visas if they're foreigners, and reshaping what education is. So there is history that's dangerous, I think, in the U.S., we're being allowed to unpack a lot of how things like King or riots um, or um, these past social movements were sort of censored. Um, and that is is something that's going on in real time in Asia. So that's why I think maybe um, we can learn a lot from just sort of seeing what that process looks like and then seeing how that was applied to us in terms of our own thinking. How were we, how was our education sort of censored and streamlined in the way it has been um, about some of the dangerous topics like a Palestine or an abolitionism um, or, you know, as Richard Wolff, I think rightly says why there's no Marxist economists. I think that is a fair point that Richard Wolff makes um, in terms of like the real, you know, in San Francisco, a, a Myanmar protester went over and was like breaking bread with the Palestinian protesters where these movements when they get together, it can be something like the Milk Tea Alliance, which is very liberal and I'm, you know, I don't think is truly revolutionary in how its message is constructed, but the idea is revolutionary. If we can link up these movements again, we can figure out a way to go back more to a 60s framework where decolonialism was global, it was intersectional, where the great powers had to play one off the other in terms of trying to get the the unity of these decolonial movements, um, we can go back to being something that's destabilizing to the current geopolitical neoliberal order. So the movements on their own are going to be fraught by all the contradictions and counter-revolutionary and reifying tendencies that we're battling with in our uh, reformism that we're battling with in the U.S. You know, I don't honestly, like I was Vicky Osterwow and probably Joy James would say in her lecture that I do think caused some people at Brown to drop out and form like militant groups. Like there's no revolution where a Harvard exists. People who are teaching at those institutions, I think they can be like class traders or race traders, but it's hard. Um, but for these other movements, it's something where if we can link them up, we can, I think, build something that's truly dangerous. And a lot of the education that's happening in these movements is happening in struggle. So I don't know necessarily, like all an academic can really do is study struggle. But what these individuals are doing, it can be these tactics where we saw the riot tactics of Hong Kong spreading, where we see sort of the artistic resistance of Southeast Asia with the three fingers, which again, okay, I don't like the sourcing, but I like people throwing Molotovs at cops. We see that spreading. Um, and when you have something as revolutionary and abolitionist as, let's say, a Palestine, when that starts building solidarity with Myanmar um, and, and then people have to unpack what that means, the history of what Palestine has had to endure, that's what I think is truly interesting. So I think 
figuring out the history of these places and seeing how they're being censored both in the past and real time is very valuable for decolonizing our own knowledge. And I think figuring out how these movements intersect in real time and you struggle as a site of education is very valuable for our own movement building. So those would be sort of two things. And then any questions on particular movements that you want to do more deep dives on, you can ask, and I can probably give a semi-intelligent answer that won't get me too much hate on Twitter. We talk also about um, that abolitionist speech at Brown, because I do think that's also a very interesting way we can talk about some, uh, some of the things that you just popped off without talking about the Western left, right? The idea that some of these institutions in which people have or seem to have the freedom and the autonomy to um, speak about things are actually like, you know, barriers or obstacles to freeing ourselves, right, of white supremacy or really convincing people to abolish stru- structures that they buy into or that privilege them. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's too complicated, Edward. If you say shit that's dangerous, you right. get fired. I mean, that's true in unions, that's true in organizing, that's true in the academy. So there's a lot of people who they figured out how to just get rid of or silence or otherwise not accept. Um, and that's, a, I mean, and this gets super abstract, like I don't really think we would debate too much that our education system is designed to create workers. And, you know, to sound, to risk sounding a little bit like George Carlin, who I think has, would have been a pretty good anarchist, you know, obedient workers. So there's, to begin with, there's not too many people, our generation more so, but the academy is already being hollowed out and turned into this profit-seeking institution that's not going to offer the same uh, institutional backing it would for previous generations of scholars. So it might be a moot point, but the academy either will filters out or prunes out. um, And I'll talk about an Asia example. Uh, just for the George James, watch George James, read George James. She is a fucking radical. I mean, she's amazing. And uh, I love her. And if I ever meet her, I will buy her Yu-Gi-Oh <laughs> cards. And I don't think she'll like her. But she'll appreciate it. Um, so um, in terms of things like uh, the Academy, I, was, I spoke to Carolyn Hirsch. Carolyn Hirsch uh, does work with the punks of Myanmar. For people who don't know, Yangon, Myanmar, has this really thriving punk movement. Now, what most people did is when they saw the anarchists, they go, oh, this is cool. Oh, people who are not white doing things white people do. Oh, this is cool. I'll share this. I, you know, I hate that shit. I am all about sort of figuring out who these people actually are, not just, you know, being a cool meme, being a cool photo, which is, I think, the where most people just went with Hong Kong. They like the photos, but in terms of actually understanding why these people felt compelled to go out into the streets. It's not fun getting shot through the eye with a rubber bullet um, or inhaling tear gas night after night. Figuring out why people are doing that is far more, or maybe not far more, but I I think far more important than the image. Carolyn Hirsch is an academic in Germany. She researches punks. Basically, she was told at every stage of studying punks in Myanmar, you can't study this. This is pointless. Why are you studying these poor people? Why are you studying these sort of marginalized people? And I just interviewed her, and it turns out, like, the punks of Myanmar, these cool memes we've all been sharing about anarchists in Myanmar, or at least we did for a time, they're people who are like the secret social workers of Yangon, where if you're trans, if you're a street person, um, if you're not uh, a Barmar man, 
who uh, is not a worker, they have acted as sort of uh, through groups like Food Not Bombs and their own sort of mutual aid groups. They provide food, they provide clothing, they provide supplies to all these people the state has deemed um, surplus. That sort of study of struggle and that sort of study of the marginalized, I think in general, the academy doesn't really have a lot of room for Richard Wolff would say there's not really a lot of Marxist economists. There's also not really a lot of economics centered from the perspective of the lumpen, which basically would say, hey, this is all bullshit. You know, why are we studying this? Um, So I think that that is like a good example of how things like the academy sort of tries to filter people out. George James talks a lot about this, and it's basically her lecturing to a room full of brown kids like Brown is not going to save you. Brown exists to, um, Mbembe talks about this too, absorb the global elite and to integrate them into global capitalism. It acts as a node that helps connect the global elite and make them a global elite. It acts as a place for global elites to socialize. It acts as a place for global elites to knowledge build. It acts as a place for global elites to center themselves in institutions like a Goldman or think tank or so on and um, solidify their knowledge. And what that lecture, yes, it's very informative, but what's radical about it is it's basically an academic saying the academy will not save you, which is very rare and uh, not talked a lot about. In terms of abolitionism, I think what George James also says in that lecture is like, why aren't we talking about Palestine and why aren't we talking about Myanmar in these frameworks, these sort of places that have allowed to be testing grounds. Jackie Wong talks about this a bit, but then Zygmunt Bauman before her and George Jackson before her and Foucault Stouffer and George Jackson, um, these sort of open air prisons that are testing grounds. When Israel, Jasper Pura talks about this, when Israel sells its weapons, they say battle tested. What does that mean? It means an Israeli soldier tested out, you know, his rubber bullet through the eye of an eight-year-old boy somewhere, you know, on the Gaza Strip. Uh, so figuring out how these violences are interconnected, what, why states are tolerating this violence, and then what it means when that violence becomes codified, I think is really important. And, you know, connected to travel a little bit, I think that is also something I really work to push back on, where a lot of these things, when people think of Thailand, they think elephants. It's like, okay, that's cool. I like elephants too. But there's like a history of communism, a history of proletarian movements where they would go and like burn Mm. tanks in Bangkok, you know, where you were eating your mango sticky rice, you know, five, you know, a block from there. And a lot of that history is not shared. It's not part of the narrative of these states. Tourism is another way that I think deeply connected to imperialism, white supremacy and all these things. But it's another way of separating us from the solidarity we could actually build with these countries like elephants and Harvard and podcasts. None of these things are going to save us. I think they're all just sort of distractions from struggle.
I mean, there, there's a lot of really interesting things to, to dig into. I mean, the, this idea of building international solidarity is, is, is so important, right? I, I think that we have definitely lost that kind of internationalism viewpoint, right? Or internationalism as, uh, as a movement. Um, and, and, and not only as a movement in the sense of like, uh, yeah, hey, it's, it's really great that there's like workers on strike, um, or the proletariat are trying to gain, gain some power somewhere else. But also that idea of like, again, what does it mean to not only study, um, the, you know, these things from afar, but to really engage with them? And at the same time, what can we learn from them? Right. Because I do think that, you know, what you were getting at before, there does seem to be a lot of, you know, that is a very kind of colonialist viewpoint is that, oh, these people need to learn from us rather than what can we learn from them. I remember seeing some of this happening um, when uh, the, the Black Lives Matter um, protest and, and riots and movements in the street. Um, and, you know, we here on TMK are definitely, you know, pro Vicky Osterwal's work and all the work in politics that sh uh, she represents. Um, you know, so when I, when I say riots in the street, it's definitely not, you know, denigrating that whatsoever. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I remember seeing people um, in the U.S., in the Black Lives Matter movements, um, learning from what was happening in Hong Kong, right, learning techniques for how to deal with tear gas, for example, or how to deal with, um, you know, riot cops, uh, uh, you know, militarized police, uh, kettling people in the streets, right? There was a lot of that kind of really interesting and explicit knowledge sharing that was going on, which I, you know, I think really exemplifies to my eye some of the things that you're talking about in terms of like not only engaging in the sense of studying, but engaging in the sense of building solidarity and learning from those techniques and tactics and sharing that knowledge as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in terms of abolitionism, um, all these police train one another. The police mm -hmm. are the armed boot of uh, stomping on all our throats of why we tolerate things like Uber or things like Lyft or, you know, Zoom surveillance or we can't even take a shit, you know, anymore at work. That is too much time off from profit seeking for, for Jeff uh, Bezos. Police globally train one another. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, the, the U.S. trained the Hong Kong police in China. When you look at the state violence being committed against Uyghur, Turkic, and other Muslim groups, including the indigenous Muslim groups, the Hui, who are ethnically Han uh, in, in, in many instances, that comes from the U.S.'s war of terror doctrine. And when, you know, the U.S. tries to complain about this, you know, obviously it is very hypocritical considering the white supremacy that we've openly tolerated in terms of how Muslims are treated in the U.S., the U.K., Australia, and other members of the Five Eyes. So all of these technologies of violence are interlinked. Myanmar buys Russian weapons and Israeli weapons. Israel trains our police force. Our police force trains Hong Kong's police force. Our anti-terrorism policies uh, dictate the carceral violence that's unleashed on other Muslim groups in other parts of the world, all this violence is interlinked. And there's not um, there's not a way out other than a universal one. If global capitalism is at this point a universal construct, if neoliberal authoritarianism, I think, 
is, if not the de facto dominant model of governance, quickly becoming it once, you know, Sleepy Joe is out and Tom Cotton takes the reins or whoever um, (laughs) is next. Um, You know, there's there's not a state solution to this. There may be alternatives, you know, to be generous to our communist and Marxist friends. Maybe there are state alternatives, but I think that would require a decolonialism like we saw in the 60s, where there were united movements that were supporting one another globally, that geopolitical powers had to bargain with on the level of state actors. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think that this picking and choosing of, well, my prison is socialist or my prison is called a gulag is fucking stupid. Once we better understand that policing is global, that violence is global, and all these Governments train one another. Uh, All these governments work with Blackwater. All these governments work with Palantir. All these governments either work with Uber or, Ed, not to crush your your critique of China, you know, they steal their technology and then implement Didi Kwai or Ulama. All of this is global, and it's only if we stand together and, and literally make it so, you know, we have workers in the U.S., marching in solidarity with, you know, like an imprisoned labor organizer like Meng Zhu or Xiangzi in China, that's the only way this neoliberal global authoritarianism is going to stop. Um, when they have to, when there's nowhere else to run, when there's nowhere for capital to run, when there's nowhere for uh, these authoritarians to go um, any longer. Yeah, and I mean, one, one example that you, you didn't uh, bring up but I know you're well aware of, and it's it's just very on the forefront right now is the way that the IDF is essentially like a, a police training academy for the world, right? Like, the, you know, um, the FBI IDF soldiers teach, uh, you know, the pacification units, as they're called, and the uh, Brazilian favelas, um, you know, tactics, right? Uh, they teach the you know, American um, police department's tactics. So, no, you're you're exactly right. And th- this gets at something that Ed and I have talked extensively about is that, like, you know, right now, this, like, you know, the, the only class that seemingly shows any kind of solidarity or consciousness with each other is capital, right? Like, they are constantly colluding and sharing and... and uh, I, would disagree, I would disagree respectfully, Jason. Yeah, sure, go ahead. I think there's a lot of really interesting solidarity amongst the poor. Um, but we just don't talk about it because uh, I think we're waking up out of a long sleep. So um, like the red shirt movement, why I study that quite a bit is it was people who had fucking nothing mm-hmm. basically like impoverished farmers going down to Bangkok and flipping over mm-hmm. tanks um, in, in the demand that they be considered political stakeholders in Myanmar, the neighborhoods that are targeted most viciously by the top Madao, the Myanmar military are poor neighborhoods because in those neighborhoods, the usual building blocks of nationalism that prevent solidarity. So patriarchy, ethnic affiliation, religious affiliation, that doesn't matter when you're struggling to eat. So the solidarity that exists in the the ghettos of of Yangon have been some of the most vicious and strong in resisting uh, the Tatmadaw's violence. In West Papua, I think where normally tribal disagreements would prove to be a barrier to solidarity because so many West Papuans have been impoverished and exploited by the Indonesian military, you see a very committed, united front that um, has proved very difficult to stop. 
And uh, if Palestine, if Israel wants to turn it into, you know, uh, its own ghetto, if they haven't already succeeded through their fascism, part of the reason that resistance is so strong is because I think a lot of the normal stumbling blocks of, of religion, of, of, of sectarianism, that poverty or um, impoverishment does a lot to dissolve that. So I, I do think capitalism, yes, it, you know, we, we can say neoliberalism and it's why I, you know, I, I'm not really interested in talking about neoliberalism anymore. It's bad. Okay. Uh, or I'll, I'll do acid with Edward and watch Adam <laughs> Curtis and say, <laughs> we'll watch every single you know, Yeah. Back to back. But I do think there's really interesting solidarity going on amongst the poor. And I think that's the challenge to us to either match that or like Zach De La Roca, who I think disappeared from public eye because he didn't want to be on the CIA's radar, you know, figure out ways to support it materially mm-hmm. in terms of things like there's a lot of people who have been charged for the Black Lives Matter protests. How are we offering solidarity to them? There's a lot of things in Giza uh, or Myanmar or Hong Kong where fundraising and crowd uh, funding or crowdsourcing would, would make a, a very big difference in the lives of those people. So I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic about what we can learn from mm. people who are marginalized. And I do think there's some really radical solidarity going on globally in those communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, point extremely well taken and dead on. You know, my, my statement was was glib, glib by design in a way, right? Because I think uh, my, my idea here was to provoke the idea that that capital does have a lot of solidarity with each other. And that's absolutely not to say, as you just rightfully pointed out, that there is a lot of solidarity. There is a lot of movements happening and being built among the the poor, um, the, the, you know, the people who, uh, you know, as Jeremy just threw in the chat, right? Like, you know, the, the never underestimate the power of those with nothing left to lose. And there are a lot of people, um, as you've just said, you know, pointing that out. I think that you know, my point was more so that we tend to think of capital as as a relationship of competition, that capital is always in competition with other capitalists. Um, and that's also not the case whatsoever. I think that everything that you've just laid out really shows why why this kind of solidarity and internationalism is so extremely necessary to not only know about, but to support and to contribute to in really material ways, however possible, because it is it is the movement that we need um, to really overcome these, you know, these global systems of, of authoritarian violence. And the only other thing I would add to that um, is uh, I think Andreas Malm, I don't agree with him in terms of, I think, some of his conclusions. I think, unfortunately, and I hope he hears this, he's a bit too dismissive of riots and of uh, the lumpen proletariat. I think, at least from what I've read of his recent work, he thinks we need leaders and I would probably stand more on the side of Ella Baker that strong people don't need strong leaders um, or Lenin. Starry Andreas, I don't agree. But I think in terms of his perspective of climate change as a global struggle, he's dead on in that when we look at these spaces where we don't necessarily understand the movements, it's not because they're inaccessible. It's because people don't do the work. They listen to, you know, like a podcast rather than, you know, listen to me as a breadcrumb. Don't listen to me as an expert. Same with that. All the podcasts should be our breadcrumbs to larger and more interesting ideas. Mm -hmm. None of these people are that smart or they wouldn't be, you know, we would be out there in the street. (laughs) I think we're all sort of figuring out how we can 
do what we want to do without being killed. Mm. So until we figure out how to do that, when we think about climate change and abolitionism, places like uh, Myanmar, gas companies, oil companies are coming in behind the barrel of a gun. Um, So I think there are real, I don't even think necessarily it's colonialism because the domestic regime, as I think Fanon talks quite a bit about, and we forget, you know, um, domestic elites are as problematic as foreign elites because they're the ones allowing the guns to be held while Total and Shell and all these other companies, BP, come into Myanmar to extract carbon. When we look at Indonesia um, and we consider, okay, why should we care about Indonesian freedom struggles or West Papua? West Papua, you know, has one of the world's largest preserved rainforests. That is maybe all that's holding us back from Kevin Costner, you know, being a prophet (laughs) in terms of, you know, global CS. So all these spaces where maybe we don't necessarily understand the conditions on the ground. And again, I think if the oppression we're experiencing is universal, then our solidarity must be too. A gun looks the same held in Myanmar as it does held by a fat pig in Chicago. Um, The technologies of violence are not different, nor is there enforcement. All these people train each other. So our solidarity needs to be universal And, you know, just to connect climate change to abolitionism to Asia, all these spaces are sites of extraction Mm -hmm. um, for global climate destruction and global production of necropolitics and the Anthropocene. So you don't have to necessarily like, let's say, um, the three finger salute. Oh, that's oh, they why not Harry Potter? Ha ha ha. I'm going to scratch myself and donate to some more Patreons. That's fine. But that is going to that's those are the sites where if we want to stop the mass death, the real mass death of, that capitalism inflicts on the environment, on lived beings, on our climate, we're going to have to center ourselves in the global sites of extraction and the revolutions that are challenging the necropolitics of the regimes in power in these places. I mean, that's all that's all dead on. Yeah, in our interviews that we've had on your show, we've also talked a bit at times about whether or not those projects are feasible, whether we can get leftists in the the United States to act in ways that show solidarity, but also in ways in which, if that's not the case, to ignore and to and to get and get away from that. I think our conversations, for example, about like Vicky's uh, work in defensive looting, like the history of how riots are actually. Uh, defense, uh, like property violence, is a, is a tactic and a and a form of protest and a legitimate like moral reaction, right, to this deeply racist and you know inhumane society. But along those lines, you know, I think we've also had conversations where we've talked about how people are still not sure what they can do without getting killed, without getting thrown in jail. And so the question then also becomes, does one of the shifts or the conversations or the or the ideas that people need to think through is like, how much are they willing to really like risk? Do they really just, do they really want to put themselves on the line so that like the world or the area they're in is better? Or do they want to reap the fruits of something improving without putting themselves on the line without putting their body on the line without putting their freedom on the line and i don't know like i think um i'm curious if what you think or what you have been thinking about that whether it's the case also that people just are i mean not you know not the movements that you've been talking with because of course these are people who have made that decision but also i think 
to begrudgingly return to the Western left is that I also don't think that's a conversation that really comes up most of the time, right? Unless it's, you know, some of the groups maybe in the Pacific Northwest or, you know, Washington, some of these anarchists who have decided, like, they are going to do property damage, right? Or they're going to do sabotage. But that for the most part, a lot of people have decided that that's not in the cards, right? And that to even suggest that is uh, is outrageous and that the main method we should be moving through the world is to study things as long as possible, to do like smart interventions at the electoral level, to do um, all the sort of stuff that will yield the outcome of a revolution without the actual revolution, it seems. Yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer than some of us are going to have to go to jail. Um, I wish that wasn't the case. I don't want Edward to be in jail. I don't want Matt to be in jail, but um, I think that's why things that on the surface may seem, I think this is our patriarchy talking like less masculine. So things like, and that's the emotive word that pops into my head that I've really had to try to kill that patriarchal voice about, you know, what direct action looks like. It doesn't always need to, I, I think Vicky talks about this too, where it doesn't need to be like me ripped punching Jeff Bezos in the face, it can be something as simple as building out mutual aid. So when someone uh, goes to prison, that they are taken care of, that they are not removed from the community. I mean, I think that's why prison is such an effective tool of the state is because we just let those people be cut off uh, from the communities that they were a part of um, for the most part, except for, you know, just maybe a small family unit that then has to bear the entirety of that brunt and burden and pain. So figuring out things like mutual aid, figuring out things like um, uh, prison support, jail support, I think are really, really incredibly important. The other thing I would say, and, and then just emphasize, some of us are going to have to go to jail. I mean, if you look at what's happening, let's say in Palestine, let's say in Hong Kong, let's say in Myanmar, is you have like Miss Universes who might get shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. Miss Universe went on the Miss Universe contest and was like, Basically, like, fuck mm-hmm. the coup. Um, in Hong Kong, you had people who who gave up quite a bit and are either living in exile or in prison. Like, they imprisoned a billionaire. Mm-hmm. A billionaire, Edward. <laughs> so, you know, um, I, I'm not a fan of uh, Jimmy mm-hmm. Lai, but um, we're going to have to risk some things if we want change. The other thing I would say is we talk a lot about people as they have nothing to lose. I would disagree. Um, respectfully, again, they are losing their hegemony. I think we underestimate people who've already been radicalized, how difficult a process it is to see outside of the hegemonic control or perspective that capitalism and the education system that wants to manufacture obedient workers indoctrinates us with. So to have someone who probably just wants to play Flappy Bird, and work at, um, you know, uh, a medium-sized manufacturing firm as a IT support or something, to then be throwing Molotovs or someone who, who believes, as I think global capitalism has instilled the global myth, and you know the propaganda of gig economies, it's more freedom, you can make your own hours, you can be your own boss. For people who have digested the same poison, of entrepreneurship, self-entrepreneurship, self-management to 
then be protesting in the streets, destroying any chance they have to be included in the hegemony and framework of capitalism is incredibly powerful. They may not you know, be able to talk with us about Marx or Gramsci uh, or many of the local you know, radicals from their, the history of their countries, but losing your hegemony is incredibly powerful. And I think very rewarding to study how people gave that up. And we need to, I think, be much more respectful of movements where people were willing to give up their ability, even though I think it's a fiction, to give up the fiction of seeing themselves as being able to survive in capitalism. If you're willing to give up any chance of a future career by participating in these movements, as so many people have, I think that's really powerful and really interesting. And I think they're the ones who need to be educating us about being unafraid to go to prison, being unafraid to to lose our fear. I think in studying these movements, we can better understand how to lose our own fear. We have nothing to lose but our chains, but for a lot of people, it's really hard to let them go. A good point, a powerful point to leave off on. I, I do. I will also uh, just really re-emphasize something that you started off saying, right? In in the sense that um, this kind of direct action ha- takes many faces. I think you are exactly right that uh, our our conception of it tends to be one of direct confrontation, right? That kind of violent confrontation in the streets, or you know, looting or rioting, and and things like that. And that's absolutely part of it. But I think you are dead on, Matt, as well, to really emphasize the the that care is just as important as confrontation. And it's its own kind of confrontation. It's a confrontation of the system of capitalism, of the material conditions that people find themselves in. And it's a way to um, you know, build out those necessary networks of mutual aid and solidarity. I think you're dead on to raise that, to emphasize that um, as well. And I think we often forget uh, about care. Um, but the people on the ground never do. They, they never do forget that care is is very much part of it. No, and, and the, like these movements, again, just for techniques and tactics, again, we all talk about the rioters of all these places. Of, and I've said Molotov a lot. I'm guilty of that, too, in this conversation. But how these movements were able to be sustained was through practices of mutual aid. Mm-hmm. That's how all these movements uh, that I have written about or interviewed people about in Asia are able to sustain, sustain themselves. It's not being the biggest badass. It's that they know that they are loved and that they will be taken care of and that they will have the support of their brothers and sisters in struggle. That's, I think, really important to remember. And I think until we build that level of communal care in the U.S. or Australian left, we're not going to be able to truly advance anything revolutionary. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Right, you know, Solidarity is not an individualistic thing, but it's a collective thing. And I think we really have to remember that. Well, I, I mean, this has just been a really great conversation. I, no, raising a lot of really excellent and important points. I just want you know, thank you for coming on, Matt. It's it's been it's been really great. Um, people, again, where can people find you and your work? So I would just want to end by centering a few resources globally Please. for people who are interested in learning more than 
<laughs> what we see on Anglo Twitter. So in terms, uh, I'll do one for each country or try to do one for each country. China, please read Chuang. Six Tone also has really good coverage in English. Um, Hong Kong, you can read the Diaspora Collective Laosan. I think at times they can be a bit snooty, but they would be snobs I would fight with and be comrades with. Myanmar, Frontier Myanmar is a pretty good resource, but to be honest, I actually do think searching around social media is great. You can find some really interesting uh, radical voices. I like the interview we did with Carolyn Hirsch. I would also recommend um, Jeff Ong, who you can read in collectives like Chuang, but also Spectre. Spectre internationally has done really good work. Jacobin has not read Spectre, not Jacobin. In terms of Thailand, the Isan record is outstanding. If you want to learn quite a bit about Marxism, communism, uh, feminism within Thailand from a radical perspective that's grounded in diligent scholarship, read the Isan record. India, there's more things that I could cite than the length of this episode. If I had to pick one, I would just say read Kashmiri Journalists. The Kashmir Walla has done a phenomenal job in the face of India's state violence in reporting on Kashmir and building out intersectional links to other sites of state violence, such as Palestine. Recently, a Kashmiri artist was jailed for painting a Palestinian mural uh, in Kashmir. Um, globally for Asia, I think the New Mandala does really excellent work in covering uh, protests. There are quite a few more I could mention, so I'll stop there and then you can go to our website. We talk to quite a few radicals from in and around Asia. Our website is asiaarttours.com. And if you like podcasts without fart noises or slide whistles <laughs> or, um, I don't know, people talking about Ben Dominich for some fucking reason or any of these other conservative losers who I don't know why I need to know about, you can listen to Asia Art Tours. It's a serious podcast where I try to ask serious questions about how we can save the world that is slowly dying and, and how to breathe life back. If you listen to this podcast, you should listen to Matt's podcast. It's my favorite podcast by far. I listen to it as much as possible. You should too. It's a, and like you said, and as you say, it, and as all of Matt's work is really good with doing also, there are a lot of resources and information that you can use to jump off from, right? So that, you know, your learning and your and the action, you know, does not just end with listening to an episode, but also uh, diving into the resources to actually get a better understanding of what's going on. Excellent. Well, and I want to thank everyone else for uh, listening. You can find us. You can you can throw us a little money if you feel like it on <laughs> patreon.com slash this machine kills. <laughs> uh, It'll be jail support money soon. That's right. That's right. <laughs> We're building up that that little uh, nest egg of bell money. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, where you can find us uh, with giving you a, another episode every single week, diving into these kinds of topics. Um, and so with that said, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you again, Matt, for coming on. Um, and we will see y'all later. Bye. Adios.
Monsters! Geh, das ist das! Oh!